When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, you are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me as we get to know our guest. Alison, how is life for you right now? What are you up to? Well, this day is particularly interesting because my car <laughs> was just broken into. So resolving that real life issue. Um, but other than that, I'm really grateful. I've been focused on um, being a founder of a company called Movement Genius. It's um, a platform that offers mental health tools and stress relief techniques for folks just wanting to improve their well-being on their own time, wherever they are. It's a beautiful season. I'm about to turn 30 and I feel like I've just been deconstructing the sense of self, the identity, the values, really examining like what does this next chapter have in store and what kind of lifestyle do I want to design? So it's it feels like a big transitional time. But headed towards somewhere beautiful which is nice I love that I love your outlook on life and I love your optimism and I love that you know sometimes things can go awfully in a day but you're just powering through with this sunny yellow jumper on and it's just like (laughs) yes this is this is this is the energy we need in life because life you know life can throw you curveballs but we shouldn't allow it to derail you know the destination of of where we're trying to get to I will add though that I want to make sure I don't lean into toxic positivity where I'm avoiding the real emotions underneath things. So I will say it is stressful when your car is broken into. I am like needing to sort through other emotions. But um, I watched this thing really recently where this person said, listen, I give myself a certain number of bumps in the road each day. And so I've come to anticipate that the curveballs will happen. So they're not surprising. But then if it gets stacked to like 10, Mm. then you can really flip your lid and say, wow, today is just a a rough day. But until then, like learning how to embrace it as a part of what it means to be alive and human in this modern world, then yeah, I think it's it's helped me not have such highs and, and lows just according to the circumstance. So I feel a little bit more even overall these days, but I say that now, give me till the the afternoon. (laughs) No, that is such an important topic that you raise, this this sort of sense of toxic positivity. And it is something that I I sort of see on social media. I know, you know, we should celebrate the, the rare positive moments that we do see on social media, but there is sometimes this sense of, you know, pushing through all and not feeling things and not letting things, you know, ruin your day. And sometimes things happen and it makes you just want to go back 
to bed and cry. And it's okay to feel those things. It's actually really important that we feel those things because otherwise mm -hmm. at the end of the week or the month when you've been putting off all of these emotions and I've been through this, this stage many times in life, you get to this, this crash and, and it's, it's so traumatic. So no, I, I agree with you. I, and I like that reference of you allow yourself a, a certain amount of road bumps in the day. And then when it gets too much, you know, take, take a breather. And one of the tools we actually share on Movement Genius is this concept of um, micro resets. So instead of thinking, oh, I need a full 10 minutes or a full hour to move my body or, you know, practice a stress relief technique, what are the quick tools that we can use in the transitional moments in our day? Because inevitably you'll switch from task to task, you'll switch from life role to life role. And in those pockets of time, if you've been adding these micro stressors all, all day long, they start mm -hmm. to stack up and work mm -hmm. on your patience and work on your emotions. So um, we recommend some of these quick tools that only take like two or three minutes and just give your body a break so you can reconnect, refresh, and not feel like by the end of the day, you go home to your partner or your cat and like let everything out on them because it's just been building and building and building. So could talk about this for hours. I love that. I love that so much. I do have to ask you, I, I hear that you bought your first home. Was it a few years ago? Was it in 2021? How are things going? Have you settled in? I, I bought my first place around the same time. And I know that it, it just takes ages to feel like you're settled in and finally everything's done. But how have things been going in this chapter of your life? Truly, there are so many decisions that go into <laughs> not only interior decoration, of course, but mm -hmm. also just maintenance and making yeah. sure that I'm tending to the home. I feel like a steward of the space. I know that I won't likely be the last person to own this house, right? So I'm thinking about longevity. I'm trying to learn about architecture. I tend to be very research oriented. So I'm trying to absorb as much information as I can. Um, but I will say it's it's been inspiring from a creative standpoint because I'm realizing that every previous place I've lived, I've had plain white walls and like a mattress on the floor. And there hasn't really been much personality because I've moved so frequently. So this space has given me a chance to really ask like what, what aesthetic or design really fosters a sense of like safety and peace and, and feels cozy enough to be welcoming for guests, but also... Mm -hmm you know, um, inspiring enough to like use it as a creative workplace. So yeah, it's been a beautiful um, like self-discovery journey and just to look at a space and think, wow, like this belongs to me, at least for now, this belongs to me in a way that no other place has. Um, it's really special. And I know it's a, a, a big privilege to be able to own property. So I, I like feel the seriousness of that. <laughs> I saw you speak about this in a video on your YouTube and I, I haven't ever related to some things that you said more in my life. And I, I, I think I grew up with a lot of instability in, my, in sort of my home life as a child. And, and it was such a huge sense of accomplishment, having something that was mine, my own place. And, and it's almost like I got this sense and I, I, you reflected this so well in this video. It's like, you now have a safe space and that safe space 
can't be taken away from you and it's such a it's such a beautiful feeling um it's mm-hmm. what it's been one of the best feelings throughout my 20s and and as you said you know we're we're so blessed to, to be in this position but it, it is so nice to have a safe space and and to know that that's something that you can go home to at the end of the day that's the place you can go to in in times of sadness but also in times of joy as well and I'm very much like you where I sort of try to curate an area that my home and my interior design just brings me so much joy, whether it's little things that I hang on the wall or things that I'll find at a flea market. It's just nice to have your comforts mm-hmm. close. Um, so I'm glad that you've been you've been enjoying doing that. In your yes. Own well. <laughs> yeah. And establishing a sense of stability after experiencing chaos. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but it took some time to become comfortable with being comfortable. I was yeah. far more acquainted with being uncomfortable or on mm-hmm. edge. And to be able to land in a place and say, like, I can give my nervous system a break, like a breather Mm -hmm. to truly recharge. Um, It it really was an intention I set because when I started the company, having spent 20 years in entertainment and then switching into this new space, I realized if I want to be supportive of people who are dealing with anxiety and depression and loneliness and all of these different real experiences every day, then like how can I provide myself a little bit of stabilization um, so that I have more energy to show up for people? Mm-hmm. So the the long story short of this also is that I'm going to be relocating again, but I am going to keep the home. Um, so that's really important to me. The thought of leaving that space entirely would be heartbreaking at this point because um, it really has redefined the word home for me. It feels... Yeah like home so I'm glad you are having a similar experience yeah well I wanted to talk a little bit about you know your journey and and how you've got to this to the space that you're in now um, both physically and both mentally as well Um, and just take things back a little bit and I I know that you know a lot of people's childhoods are, are full of memories watching you growing up on screen but when you look back at your childhood what really stands out to you wow that's a great question i don't think anyone's framed it quite like that because typically i'm asked about the projects themselves mm-hmm. and working with castmates um and i have sort of a story a go-to narrative of how all of that went down but what i remember truly in my body um it's typically the rehearsal periods when we're in the studio training and we're practicing and we're preparing and we're bonding with our castmates for the first time before we go on stage or on set. And I think there's a reason that I can remember that I'm more relaxed in the settings because it's not the full-on performance yet. So I'm a little bit more present and we're really clued in and vulnerable as we're exploring characters. And we're really like doing the work. By the time we're on set, it's like, yes, we still get to play as actors, but we kind of need to be ready to go and get the shot. So um, my memories are usually about the craft building moments, um, which are, you know, so special. I think of all of the beautiful skills um, that have come from learning how to be really present, um, learning how to dig into a character's story and have empathy for people of all different backgrounds and identities. Um, But I will also offer that the stress on my body growing up as a kid really took a toll as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what was the audition process like for you as a child? Because I think for someone that that wasn't in this, this industry growing up, my immediate thought is, you know, 
as a kid, it must be so difficult to just deal with rejection. But I can imagine there are so many other complex feelings and thoughts that you have going on in your developing mind. What what toll did going through this sort of rigorous audition process take on you as a kid? And how does it really shape the relationships that you built in the future? Yes, that's a great question. So there are several themes that come up during the audition process. One of them that people can predict is this frequent rejection. Yes. Mm. Um, But within that, there's this idea where a child is putting themselves forward very vulnerably to us in front of a stranger and then is mostly met with rejection. But within that experience of auditioning, it's not a two-way vulnerable space. The casting director is not holding space for your feelings. It's not therapy. So the child is left after the audition, whether they're ecstatic or really sad um, to regulate their own mind and body. And for the most part, parents aren't equipped with the tools to understand what's going on. Um, And the child themselves still is at a a level of brain development where they're not differentiating between reality and fantasy. So there are very real ways that a child is reenacting scenarios vividly and marking themselves emotionally, mentally with stories that really penetrate their nervous system um, and then don't have support afterwards for them to de-roll, come out of character, um, regulate their emotions and recognize, oh, that really wasn't me. That was just playing pretend. So additionally, even if you're an adult, I mean, the audition process can be pretty brutal. And I think what people don't recognize is that Auditioning is the large majority of your professional career. Unless you book a series regular role or you're on a film for three months, the audition is the job. When you book the job, that's when you get to play. (laughs) So um, learning how to kind of become this master people pleaser, walking into a room with strangers and, and attentively figuring out what do they want from me and how can I bend into the shape they need to win them over. Um, And having that process be associated with your livelihood, like as in, this is how I'm going to make money. This is how I'm going to secure people responding to me, um, like in terms of attachment. There's like a lot of subliminal messages that a child absorbs. And, And frankly, one of them too is simply when you're in an environment and the adults around you are, um, they're affiliated with performing. That means most of the qualities about yourself that are being addressed are your performer identity qualities. So as a child, if you have other mental and emotional needs, even though you're a whole person, those aren't really being addressed. So you see as young people get older in the industry, there's this weird paradox where on the one hand, we have tons of attention and praise on us. And you think, wow, they have everything focused on them. It's so self-absorbed. And on the other hand, the critical, deeper mental and emotional needs are often really neglected and and just overlooked. So yeah, being in the industry as a kid (laughs) is, um, it's something that I'm about to release a podcast about. There's 97 pages of written material and I'm breaking down the toddler to train wreck pipeline so people can grasp all of the contextual factors that go into a young performer starting with you know this exciting dream perhaps and then somehow years later spiraling and having a breakdown and wondering who they are when they turn 18. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. How was your development, do you feel, altered as a child growing up working in the industry? Well, you have to name one obvious thing here, which is I was working adult hours as a child. So I am literally wired for workaholism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like my work ethic was absurd in my teens. I just didn't stop until my body was run to the ground and I was in rehab thinking, oh, my health is actually, it's been so sacrificed. I'm going to have to change something or I won't make it. Um, But everything around me was oriented towards making this dream work. So workaholism for sure. Um, Also in terms of losing privacy as a child, I simply grew up having to be mindful of any time I opened my mouth, any expression that crossed my face, any place that I was in, because people might be watching, they might be you know, clocking what I'm saying and and turn it into gossip or something, but also for my safety, you know, dealing with stalkers, dealing with people who follow you around, um, whether they have good intentions or not. And, And you're a child, but they're an adult. And there's an interesting psychological thing happening between, you know, us where I'm not totally aware of you, but parasocially, you feel like you know me and therefore you share very personal information with me, or you try to do things with me that, you know, are reserved for someone you truly know. Financially, when you're making money as a child, you won't be able to touch the money until you're 18. However, in order for your family to put food on the table, oftentimes family members are on your payroll. So they have a salary um, because they might have to give up their job to help you be able to pursue this. Um, so there's an, there's a strange dynamic where you have this power where you're making money and you could, some of my peers could buy houses when they were like 10 years old. Um, I was technically president of a corporation by like 10 or 11 years old, but I didn't understand what that meant. And I had a business management team around me, but I never learned financial literacy in a way that would be truly empowering once I had control of my money. And I remember thinking, turning 18, wow, I'm terrified. I don't know. I don't know how to budget. I don't know how to um, invest or save. Um, thankfully, you know, I was very frugal. I didn't have some of the other behaviors that my, my peers did in terms of spending. Um, but still, there were a lot of things that slipped through the cracks, people taking money that I didn't know about. And that's simply because I started making it so early, it was just set off as an area that we don't need to worry about until you're older. And then socially, of course, building friendships, it's hard when you feel like you can't trust people, you don't know their motives. Um, But educationally, too, is a huge gap. Um, I unfortunately never really had a consistent educational experience. And so I had a lot of insecurity growing up trying to fill in the blanks with like, okay, what are the books that I was supposed to read? What are are the subjects I was supposed to learn because I was either homeschooled or switching schools or frankly, just on a set where the teacher was like, no, you don't have to worry about anything. Just go play. You know, I was the kid who's like, no, I want to learn. Like, please, I might want to do something else besides this. Um, But education was just, you know, kind of swept to the side, unfortunately. So really, The easiest way to summarize is, of course, if you place a child in an adult environment and their whole lifestyle is, you know, turned upside down, you're going to have developmental roadblocks, you're going to have developmental disruptions, and that's in every key area of life. 
And I know I, as a kid performer, am not the only group of people who experience big disruptions. Um, so it's not about woe is me. It's more like, hey, let's all take a moment to reflect on the big life events that shifted us. How have they shaped who we've become and how can we heal as well as, you know, reorient to a more whole balanced version of ourselves. Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How have you been able to implement a better workplace structure in your life now? Great question. So (laughs) in establishing my company with my sister, because it's a well-being company, we made a commitment that we would not sacrifice our well-being in order to grow the company. So we've set much more modest goals in terms of business growth and development, which I so appreciate in like the capitalistic startup culture of high growth and speed scaling. We're like, okay, sustainability, please. Because mm-hmm. my sister has kids. Uh, I don't even have kids and I need the, mm-hmm. the balance. And so that was like establishing the values up front was really important. And frankly, when I moved out uh, and bought the home, I found myself very isolated. So one of the reasons I'm relocating is because I really need to reconnect with community, mm-hmm. craving it. And I'm realizing instead of being so self-disciplined and individualistic in how I approach career, I really want to find other people and ask for help, ask for support, like take a course instead of me just trying to convince myself to read for an hour every day, like Mm -hmm. take a course where there's an instructor and a curriculum and check-ins and accountability. Um, So I'm, I'm really finding a lot of my work-life balance happening because of community community Mm -hmm. ties and just shifting my overall outlook on like, why was I chasing after achievements anyway? Um, It's been, um, it's been an interesting time for sure to examine the values that drive you growing up. And then as an adult asking, is this, does this still feel beneficial? And does it still feel in service of how I want to show up in the world? If not, like, hmm might need some big changes and I'm not exempt from every other, you know, like I'm 
fully human. So I tell you, I have this goal, but if you check in in two years, I may or may not be closer to it. Like life is complicated. So doing my best. I think it's so it's so true what you say about, you know, I, 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 this is something that I am constantly working on and checking in with myself on is this. And and I think, you know, COVID has, has really made this, this issue a little bit worse for me. I'm such a homebody and I'm such an introvert. And I think because, you know, a part of my job is, is, to be around people and and to to be present that I really enjoy you know coming home and and having my alone time but I think because COVID has shifted things and you know a lot of work can be done from home now I find that I'm always so willing to put my hand up and take that option but I am also realizing as as much as I'm not an introvert I do love social interaction and I do need that to to grow and develop and and that's what brings me joy so it is it's about balancing the two and and I love that you know you you see the beauty in in a community of people as well as you know saving a a space for you to have your time to recharge as well I think that that is so important I know you mentioned that you you did admit yourself to rehab what was recovery like for you wow well if anyone listening has experienced recovery you know that um, a minute can feel like an hour, an hour can feel like a day, a day can feel like a year. Um, Mm -hmm. Because when you're rewiring your habits and you're, um, you know, choosing to abstain from a certain behavior that used to help you like numb out or feel better temporarily, it's, it's quite, for me at least, anxiety provoking to sit with all the feelings that were under it. Um, and so the process of building new skills um, takes a lot of patience. Um, and there's like, for, at least for me, there was a moment where I knew like I had wanted for so long to recover, but still would, you know, dabble with whatever urges and behaviors. And then there was just one moment where I knew like, never again. I can't do this another time. Mm -hmm. And given that my struggle was food oriented, I knew I couldn't quit food altogether, but I did need to um, shift my whole approach to caring for my body and coping with emotions and distress in different ways. And so I had to start on bed rest in rehab for, I forget how many weeks, Um, just to get enough nutrients in and to get some weight back on my body. Um, And then eventually after, you know, months of individual and group sessions every day, um, I went to a transitional house and that's really, you know, quite nerve wracking when you're like, "Uh Oh, this is, I have to practice how I'm going to do this in real life. Not in this, you know, perfect little uh, environment where everything is like, feels safe and and easy. Um, And so I remember the the most difficult part for me was learning how to communicate to friends and family what kind of support I was going to need once I got home, because I've been so self-reliant, but this was bigger. This was bigger than me. I needed to know when I got home that, you know, if a family member even accidentally did something that was like really, really, uh, I don't like to use the word trigger, but in this case, like classically, yes, triggering, um, that I would have the language to be able to address it or say, hey, is it possible if we, you know, approach this differently next time? Um, that was really scary uh, mm-hmm. to, tr- to trust that other people would care about my recovery in the way that I did. Um, but it, it made it 
all the more important to find support groups of people who are going through something similar. Um, but I will say, like, if anyone is feeling like, you know, something is kind of taking control of their life and they'd like to make some shifts, like the process of reorienting is so worth it. Like the quality of life is so much better than where I was when I was 18 and just lost and in such a dark place all the time. And my relationships can be more vibrant because I'm, I'm more awake and present and like your energy, your mood, so many beautiful things um, can come from recovery. So 10 out of 10 would recommend. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> totally. I love, you know, that that is, that's the way you share your experience and it, and it is hugely relatable too. I feel like I've mentioned this on the past, like three episodes of this podcast now, so much so that I think I need to make a separate podcast about this subject. But I am personally at the moment working on trying to heal some of my trauma by really speaking uh, and talking to my childhood self. What would mm-hmm. you personally say to the younger version of yourself now being in the headspace that you're in? Yes, great question. So I'm going to take your question even one step further. When I'm working with my therapist, we use the IFS model, internal family yeah. systems. Are you mm-hmm. familiar? A little bit, a little bit. Okay. So of course, I'm not an expert. Fact check me all the time. Um, the way I would describe it is you start to identify the different parts and sub-personalities within you that at different developmental periods or you know during different life events sort of created these sets of traits and responses, attitudes about the world, beliefs about yourself. And so over the many years, we've collected Um, all of these different parts. And we have all of these different younger people. So it's not just one for me, how I understand it. It's not just one inner child, but there's like a whole bunch of them running around. One of them is like, you know, my strategy to survival is being the most obedient kid ever. The other one is like, I just want to throw a tantrum because no one's listening. Mm -hmm. And so I've really been exploring many, many inner children for a while. And, um, and as I, I meet them, what I'm finding is each of them has different needs and needs space held for them in their own unique way. And so sometimes it's about just sitting and listening and letting them speak and saying like, I'm not even going to try and and, and tell you why that, that fear doesn't make sense or it's not logical. I'm just going to hold space because you really, you felt like you didn't have anyone listening to this need at the time. Um, and in other cases, I feel like I can have more of a conversation and back and forth. And I'm like, hey, so what do you need from me right now? Okay, cool. Let's rebuild some trust. Bring it in for a hug. Nope, not yet. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, res- I respect that boundary. Um, so one exercise that's been really helpful is um, I'll take out a journal and with my right hand or my dominant hand, I'll uh, write from sort of my adult present voice. And then when I want to let the child or the part speak, it doesn't have to be a younger part. It can be, you know, it could be someone in their twenties. Um, I'll switch hands. And just by doing that, it not only slows down um, the processing and, and writing out the thoughts, but you tend to, unless you're ambidextrous, your other non-dominant hand is kind of like a little bit sloppier. And mm-hmm. there's this way that it feels like, oh, this vulnerable part deserves attention. Mm-hmm. Like 
um, they haven't learned all the skills that the dominant mm-hmm. hand has learned. Um, and it just kind of brings up more empathy. So that's, you know, a vague way of addressing that I speak to a lot of parsons myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I think I start by listening and they bring up things all day long now. Um, and it's, sometimes it feels really noisy upstairs. <laughs> but all the kids are there. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is like, sometimes, you know, I didn't recognize before how a young part would just take over yeah. and it would jump in the driver's seat. And I would be like, why am I reacting this way in this situation? Um, until I'm, you know, I'm now learning to, get to know these parts so that when I recognize them jumping into the driver's seat, I can say, Hey, 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 like, I'm going to keep driving here, but you can let me know how you're feeling from the passenger seat. Or in some cases, the part actually does have some strengths and is like, no, I promise you, I've been through this before. This was the best strategy. Then it's the the best one now. And sometimes they can take the driver's seat. You just have to know as the like adult grown self when to like take back the steering wheel and say, okay, mm-hmm. you, you had your time now head back out and go play. And like grown up Allison needs to address the rest of the day. I don't know if that all sounds very bizarre, but it's been no, very helpful. It doesn't at all. And it is so helpful because I, I'm even thinking about in my life and I'm talking about, I, I sort of practice this one version of myself. But I am thinking as well that there you are so right in there are so many versions of, of our younger self. And oftentimes, and I don't know whether this relates to this theory, but oftentimes I feel like there are younger versions of myself that are giving me conflicting information and, and yes. my feelings are conflicted. And it's like, that that is interesting almost in itself. and and you know, as, as a person, as an adult being in the present, you can, I could approach a situation and I could feel two conflicting feelings, strong feelings about something. And then everything becomes so noisy, but that is because I'm guessing there are, you know, there are multiple versions um, and multiple coping strategies of our younger self that is coming through. So it's, it's important to hear those out and then sort of readjust and yeah right. bring bring ourselves back into the present yeah and there are usually you know a handful of parts that we've specifically set aside neglected maybe we thought um you know there wasn't space for them and for me one of them was desire like any part mm-hmm. of me that wanted to connect to my own real desire I shut down because I have experience coming from a certain church congregation where like you're not supposed to trust any of your own desires you're kind of like, you see the, the flesh, your body as like, you know, a place where sin happens. Um, and so as I've gotten older and I've been doing this work in therapy, um, I'm realizing, oh, when I feel the sense of desire, now I'm trying to like give it enough room to have its voice, but I'm realizing, whoa, like this feels really powerful. Cause I've been, I've been shoving this down for so long and it really wants to like take over. How do I how do I manage this part? So, mm-hmm. you know, sharing that just to say, like, if you reflect on certain, you know, sets of emotions that you tend to shun or certain situations where you tend to, I don't know, shut down certain parts of yourself, it could be interesting to create a safe place and time to like, let them come forward and, and ask yourself, like, why did I, what, at what point did I decide that it was better to separate and, and avoid this part than to integrate it and be more whole. Mm-hmm. What steps would you like to see the industry take to protect young performers in the future? 
Well, <laughs> I think it's a multi-step process. Mm-hmm. So at the legislative level, we still need child labor laws across all 50 states uh, here in the states. Um, but then on set, I think having a mental health coordinator or professional who's able to do you know, a run-through of the script to see what themes might be explicit or mature or um, intense and how can we provide support before, during, and after those particular scenes, if not throughout the entire shoot. Um, and then additionally, when someone's onboarding with an agent, they're not really given any sort of manual for what to expect. And, you know, if we were to get hired for a job, usually the employer's like, here's how things go down here. Mm -hmm. But in the industry, the child doesn't really get that support. So I'm designing modules that agents can share with new clients where parents and kids can watch and learn about like the process that they're going to be experiencing with auditioning and some simple tools of how to prep and how to come down out of character after the audition. Um, simple ways to, you know, deal with rejection, to reframe some of the negative beliefs that come up when you're being told no, 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 no. Um, so I think it's it's really about providing resources um, and having them available at the main points where a child is getting into the industry, a child is on set, and a child is now, you know, maybe famous and, and needs other protections. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of things we can do. And I'm going to do my part. Um, and I also hope that it ends up rippling into other environments with high-performing children. Because I know mm-hmm. academia, athletics, there are a lot of areas where I think as a culture, we might want to ask ourselves, at what point are you supporting the child's development by pushing them? And at what point are you actually kind of behaving in a way that's destructive to their overall well-being. We as adults, you know, are in charge of creating the safe environment for children. Even if you think the child is mature, even if they say everything makes sense and they can do it, it's still taking a toll on their mind and body one way or another. So I think we could stand to be a little bit better educated across the board um, as a general public about what it means to create a better environment for for all kids. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Honestly, I I think you are you're such an important voice and you just sharing what is to, you know, a lot of people a unique experience. I think everyone can take something away from the thoughts and the feelings and and your sort of mantra for life. I think it's so powerful and the work that you're doing with Movement Genius sounds incredible as well. So I I wish you all the best in the future, Alison, and thank you so much for joining us on this episode. And that concludes this episode of Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. That is me. I hope you enjoyed it. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and I will see you soon.